Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the false narratives churches tell. So Scott, I don't think you even know this because you really don't care about these things or drag them closely, but we are almost at 1 million downloads on the podcast. Oh my Can you goodness. That? Yeah. No, I can't. I had no idea. That's <laughs> it, cool. Over- we're, we're at 160 different episodes, so over the course of all of those, we've had almost a million. So we're doing this fun uh, giveaway, actually, in connection with your new book, A Church Called Tove, where we're giving away 10 copies to people who share about the podcast, um, where they where they view it from, maybe Northern's post that we've posted. And all, all you have to do, our listeners, is use the hashtag Church Called Tove, and um, that will put you in the competition. And... So what people have to do is tweet something and use hashtag church called Tove. Yeah, tweet on Twitter, on Instagram, or okay, very good. Uh, on very Facebook. Good. Just let us know what, where, where, how you listen, and um, we hopefully we're gonna uh, give these ten away at when we hit nine hundred and fifty thousand listens. So. Um, okay. While we're recording now, we're not quite there. We're almost there, um, but we're going to announce that uh, when we hit that. So, all right. So, but that's just a little fun thing. We've got an uh, important topic to talk about yes, today. We we're, we're, we're yes, continuing, we do. continuing our series on uh, your new book, A Church Called Tove. And one of the things that you really highlight last time, you know, we talked about what how the book came to be and um, the culture and, and how it exists and all that it does in a church. And uh, one of the things that you highlight are the, the different elements that kind of breed these toxic cultures. Cultures. And I thought you started your, your chapter on narratives uh, in a real compelling way. And I'll just go ahead and, and read that and, and then uh, invite you to kind of fill in a, a question here. So at the beginning of the chapter, you say, God wired us as humans to make sense of our lives through storytelling. We understand our lives and the lives of our families, our churches, our nation, and our world by forming the facts or non-facts into a narrative chain, and we live in and through those stories. So Scott, would you say that false narratives are are probably the leading cause of a a toxic culture that gets perpetuated? Um, Well, I'm... uh, Toxic cultures produce false narratives when accusations are laid against the church or the leaders. So it doesn't, you know, I, in part, no, I, I would not say it creates toxic cultures. Yeah. But it is clearly the way toxic leaders and toxic cultures respond when allegations are made, when an alternative narrative is proposed, when a criticism is is given, uh, you know, in all kinds of in all kinds of situations. That narr- a false narrative may pop up, and uh, as I as I said, I believe last time, you know, Chaz, I've been talking about some of these things for so long. I don't ever remember where mm-hmm. where where I last said something, but I was studying uh, how the German pastors 
yeah, responded to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, th- I saw there that they were doing things that I was hearing about Willow. And mm-hmm. I did not read that book at all to talk to, to think about Willow. But as I read this, I thought this is the way people deal, leaders, narrators, people who have the capacity to create stories and, and form communities on the basis of stories. Uh, this is the way they respond when they have to confront uncomfortable truths about themselves, mm-hmm. is they seek to use their power to write a different narrative and create belief in their narrative on the basis of trust and authority. How much do you think it's uh, like intentional or it is just so ingrained with the the maybe identity that they've created for themselves that they do it by default and uh, and just the only the only response they could think about would be to do to to create a false narrative to try to protect themselves. Well, I'm not willing to go along with any idea that it's not intentional. Uh, yeah. I think some parts of it could be barely intentional, but but by and large, churches and pastors and leaders have a responsibility to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. They are a truth-telling culture, and those who don't tell the truth are implicated at the at the root of their life because they know that they're supposed to be truth tellers. And they simply don't want want to do it. I mean, I I talked to um, a, a pastor yesterday who told me that there's some accusations against a pastor that he knows, and he's a part of a committee. And he said um, he said every every allegation that was laid against the pastor was denied. No, that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. Well, I I. If this one pastor that I know is telling the truth, then this other pastor is lying. So I don't, I don't think it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. And what I found in, um, and not, not all these were found in the Holocaust, the post-Holocaust pastors, but what I found in, the, in that um, study and what we've developed out of Willow and what we've seen in people like Boz Javidian, who focuses on this in his wonderful ministry called Grace. And Boz was kind enough to give us a wonderful endorsement on the book. And what we've seen in Wade Mullen, who specializes in this, that uh, we came up with eight false narratives that churches use. They overlap. And it, it's not like you can assign one narrative to a church and another narrative to a different church. Yeah. Uh, what, what we discover is that a lot of these churches use all these narratives, or most of them. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah, rise to the surface to protect, in the situation. Yeah. Anything to protect their reputation, their power, their authority, their money, mm-hmm. their status, etc. And you know, it's a good thing to want to defend your church. That's a good thing. But you don't want to defend your church by not telling the truth. Yeah. Eventually, that deconstructs the witness of the church. 
Right. Absolutely. So what are these different elements? And I know you, you know, you go through each one in detail in the book, yeah. but um, maybe a brief uh, summary. I think this is one each. of the more creative sections of our whole book. Yeah. Was this and a Laura section that you guys first talked about on the beach that you mentioned? last? Yeah, time? this is what, we, you know, I gave her some of the points, not, uh, not this whole thing, uh-huh. but we would start filling in things and Laura would go, I know a story about this. I know a story about that. And I would develop them and then we would think about it. We change the terms. But, uh, you know, some churches hire PR firms. Uh, you know, Willow Creek hired a PR firm mm-hmm. to help them construct a narrative. And and the first thing Willow did was pound on the women as liars. But that's not really one of them. But I'll, I'll start with this. One of the first things Willow did was to discredit uh, and other churches do this is to discredit the critics. So there's character assassination. This is what lawyers do in law courts, is they seek to get the jury to believe that this person is not credible to be telling this story. And therefore, no matter what is said, it's discredited. So they attack the the character. A, A really good story of this is Rachel Den Hollander, who blew the whistle on Larry Nasser, mm-hmm. the Olympic um, doctor who mm-hmm. was abusing all these young girls who were involved in in gymnastics. And uh, Rachel Den Hollander says, when I came forward as an abuse victim, this part of my past was wielded like a weapon by some of the elders in her own church to further discredit my concern, essentially saying that I was imposing my own perspective or that my judgment was too clouded. So this is what churches do. This is what Michigan State did. This is what Larry Nassar did. This is what his lawyer did. They try to get people not to believe someone by attacking their character. And if you can't get their character, you try collusion. So one of one of the Willow Creek narratives was that the Ortbergs and Vonda Dyer and Nancy Beach, the Miatos, Betty Schmidt, they were all in on this together somehow to attack Bill Hybels at the end of his ministry. Well, if you love Bill Hybels and people at Willow Creek did, and many of them still do, and they all ought to because, because of the ministry that God used him through. But, uh, you know, when you believe these people and they start telling this narrative, you you believe it. You know, they say she's a loose cannon or he's got no Christian maturity. She's emotionally unstable. These are simply attacks on a person's character in order to discredit him. All right. A second one that we look at, this is an intensification of character accusation, is to demonize the critics instead of just saying, Uh, she's a loose cannon, Uh, they will actually say this is the work of the devil. I've I've heard this uh, recently that a pastor accused some of his critics as, uh, you know, either this is telling the truth or this is in in allegiance with the liar and the devil and demons and Satan. Well, this ramps the story up to a very, very serious level. And it begins to impugn the character of the critics at the highest spiritual level that they're actually in league, you know, uh, with 
with Satan. James McDonald at Harvest Bible Fellowship, is that Harvest Bible Chapel, um, said what the men are saying is satanic to the core and must be dealt with very directly. If you believe James McDonald, then all of a sudden you've assigned you've assigned the, the critics to Gehenna, to the pit and fire, uh, the, the fire pit of destruction. So uh, we looked at, we looked and tried to distinguish uh, narratives that are just character assassinations and then ones that ramped it up to the next level. So that's the second. The third is to spin the story. And this is, uh, this is typical for, for leaders, is simply to take the facts of that accuser, that person who's alleging problems at the church, and spin it into a completely different narrative. Just rearrange the facts so that you no longer have to worry about that story. And we tell the, uh, a story of a woman that this was uh, that this happened to at Willow, but I'll move on to something else. Think about this. When a woman's story is turned around and people are told that she made up accusations because she wanted someone's job and the church didn't give it to her, that's spin. Mm-hmm. Now, they've created a motive and almost always they never talk to the person. Isn't yeah. that right? Or when a pastor tells his congregation that his personal assistant wanted a bigger challenge than being my assistant and change jobs on good terms, though everybody at the church knows that she was fired, right? Fired often because of allegations made or seeing something or witnessing something. So at that point, they're just spinning a story and it's a believable story. Nobody, hardly anybody knows the facts, maybe some of the insiders. And it's a Christian a Christianly baptized story. You know, Betty Schmidt at Willow Creek, who served as an elder for some 30 years, said this on her own blog. It has been very disturbing to hear my words from the meeting with the Willow Creek elders become twisted, added to, and extrapolated from. By speaking truth of what I actually said, I hope to make the record clear. The current Willow Creek elders have misquoted me and misrepresented me. All right. This is this is something even the elders got in on. And this this is not unusual in churches. Sad to say is that the way to deal with allegations is to spin another narrative that has to work against the truth, spin the truth, create a false narrative. It's lying at some level. And this is the way sometimes churches think is their only means of survival. You know, ultimately, Chaz and Laura, one of the the only things that is going on here is it's a survival tactic of pounding on the person making allegations, hoping that the force and the public words, I mean, when your name gets mentioned, from the Willow Creek platform, the Harvest Bible ch- platform, from the Vatican, from Southern Baptist leaders at the Southern Baptist Convention. When your name gets um, besmirched like this, you're in pain. It's painful to get up in the morning and to read that thousands of people 
think something about you that is absolutely false. And that's yeah. a lot of times what, what they're doing. Now, what we learned, this is something that I'd seen the term before, but it has really come into modern usage. The fourth uh, strategy, the fourth false, false narratives that churches use, that leaders in churches use, is called gaslighting. To gaslight someone is, is to try to get them to think that the story they're telling is so distorted they have to be mentally uh, messed up or psychologically set apart. So one definition is it's a form of psychological manipulation in which a person sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment. Using denial, misdirection, contradiction, and misinformation, gaslighting involves attempts to destabilize the victim and delegitimize, delegitimize the victim's beliefs. And there's really good studies, and we quote a sociological study as well on this very issue. Now, here's something that, um, that I think is distinct to uh, our perception of gaslighting, uh, to mine as a Christian theologian, but all theologians and biblical people and leaders should, should recognize this. When an accuser is gaslighted from the platform of a church, think about this, by a trusted pastor with leadership support, all the elders, all the deacons agree, all the bishops agree, the destabilization becomes all the more intense, think about it, because the prevailing narrative now appears to be connected to God's truth, the word of God, the leader of God, the man of God, and it has been broadcast to a crowd of people who are inevitably going to accept the church's story. It is no wonder that accusers fail to report abuse yeah. because of what they fear could happen to them from the platform. Yeah. Gaslighting. Yeah, go ahead. And well, it gets multiplied by that too. If it's something that is not a one-time incident where there's one victim, but multiple victims, and one person may speak up, it, it's and they have that gaslighting experience, then it's going to make it that much more less likely for somebody else to speak up because they've already had their own doubt that's been sowed in their own mind that's taken. Well, well, Chaz, uh, th this is if there are multiple victims, sometimes. There is only one victim, and right. it's a more difficult situation when it's one victim. It can be he said, she said, uh, and that's more difficult to discern, unless you've got some evidence. Um, but when it's multiple people, uh, it can still be incredibly difficult to get the story told, get the people to go on record. You know, I had three reporters tell me that they had Bill Hybels' story. One person told me, the story was known 20 years ago, but it was not big enough for them to talk about. Another one said, I had three different women who had told me their story, none of which were willing to go public. Mm -hmm. Now, this is why, Chaz, this gaslighting, mm -hmm. instead of a church responding to wounded victims with mercy and empathy and grace and kindness and a desire in wisdom to find the truth, 
These people fear their story going out there because of what will happen to them. So the storyteller, I mean the victim telling her story, it's usually a her, when the victim tells her story, she is afraid that she's going to be victimized and gaslighted in public. Mm-hmm. And so they just they just don't talk. Yeah. And, and Scott, can, can yeah, I say too? Yes, I think, thanks, Laura. I think sometimes it's, you know, we think of gaslighting as this extreme form of telling someone you're crazy, yeah. you know. But I think a lot of times it's more, I just don't remember it that way. Um, The leader saying, I don't remember it that way. You're you're you have your own interpretation of events that are colored by your own perspective. So they start to discredit the victim. It's it's a combination of these things of saying your memory is is faulty or you were determined to see it that way because you have some agenda, you know, or um, so it's, it's a form of discrediting the victim at the same. And who's going, you know, given those options between the strong leader and their interpretation of events or this victim who maybe has never spoken in public about anything ever before. Um, And, and so it's easier to believe that this woman misunderstood, you know, certain signals or, you know, is remembering incorrectly. And so, you know, it's much easier for a community to say, we'll believe our trusted leader as opposed to this woman that we've never heard before anywhere. Um, it's much easier not to believe her story. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point, Laura. It is. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be just uh, overt, you're crazy. You're, you're, uh, she's a loose cannon. It can just be, well, I understand what she's saying. And you know, you could even fake sympathy. I, I'm sorry if I did something that could have been wrong, but I don't remember doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And the next thing the the woman is saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't about remembering. This happened. You right. emailed me at two in the morning. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, well all and right. then it, it kind of even dovetails into your, your next one of make the perpetrator the victim. <laughs> you know, yeah. to, after you instill that doubt, then... The, the next step is leveraging it to say, hey, I'm actually the victim here in this. You know, one of the things I've heard um, over time, this is really, to me, this, this gets at me because it's, it's, so, it's so biblical at some level, is that, um, is the use of Matthew 18. Yeah. You know, if you got, you mm-hmm. got something against something, go to them privately. Uh, or to say, you should never bring an accusation against an elder if you don't have two or three witnesses. All right. Now that seems biblical. Or they appeal to 1 Corinthians 6 that uh, we shouldn't be going public, going to the legal courts to judge things about churches. So so the accusation is so-and-so who's lodging an accusation against us is not being biblical is to flip the script. It's to flip it. To, you know, I'm the one. So Bill Heibel says from the, the church family meeting in March, I, I think this was the first church meeting. Bill said, my major emotion right now is sadness. I'd always prided myself on being able to build and sustain relationships over a long period of time. The fact that some of these people that you've been reading about 
We are not in good relationship right now, and that's very sad to me. I've worked with some of these folks for decades, and they felt like family, like relatives to me. And through the situation that we'll be describing to you, we wound up on different sides of issues. Issues, mm -hmm. different sides. Did you do it or not is the only issue. <laughs> Seeing truth in a different way. Truth. Okay. That right there, Bill now has drawn you into sympathy for his situation. And over and over, this is what leaders do. Is they uh, Some of these leaders, you know, you can talk about the, the Pope. You can talk about the priests in the Catholic Church. You can talk about 400 Southern Baptist pastors who uh, about whom there have been stories told in the last who knows how many years. You can talk about Sovereign Grace Ministries and C.J. Mahaney. You can talk about any of these stories. And you will often find someone whose first narrative was to make themselves a victim and therefore to turn the victim into an accuser. And now the script is flipped and everything changes. And, and usually the woman now is in a very, very difficult situation. So now, so I, I want to go back to this Bible thing, is that you're not supposed to be going public about these things. All right, let me say this. Uh, almost no pastor ever molests a woman in public. You know, that's pretty rare. This is always private. There are never two or three witnesses to a single incident. It's, there's one, it's one person. Mm -hmm. When multiple people come forward as they, you know, how many people came forward at Harvest Bible Chapel to say they, they experienced uh, power mongering or fear or whatever from James McDonald. Uh, you know, there are multiple witnesses to certain things, but we, we need to be careful. But one of the other ones is gossip. Now, Mary DeMuth, who is a writer in this field, and she also endorsed our book, and she is a victim. Uh, she's been victimized. She said, let me be clear. To out a predator publicly is not gossip. It's justice. Just don't ever forget that. Yeah, that's a good quote. Right. That's powerful. But yes. people say that's gossiping about someone. That seems Christian, but it is a failure to be a Christian in a very difficult situation. All right, I know, I know, we're going to run out of time here, Chaz, and uh, so so let me get the next three done in a little bit quicker time. All right. Sometimes <laughs> people silence the truth. Here's here's what we discovered in our reading about this stuff. And uh, we dug up, we dug up some uh, texts and okay, I don't mean text messages. We dug up some church documents, uh, official documents that were hard and, to get to, and mm -hmm. all kinds of things. But churches tend to silence the truth, silence the the accuser in two ways. One is non-disclosure agreements, um, and I I was told I was told by a number of people. Uh, once I, st I blogged about this, I was getting letters from mostly women all around the nation and in other in Europe as well of of um, how people were trying to silence. But the new, the new thing in the business world is non-disclosure agreements, mm -hmm. which, in other words, is bribery. I will give you 
$250,000. I will pay for I will pay for your education. I will uh, I will buy you a condominium in a, on a resort in Florida mm-hmm. if you will not talk. Th- this happens. Yep. I I've heard astronomical figures from churches of how much money they were willing to give people to keep their mouth shut. And uh, it's awful. Now, another one, seemingly biblical and pious and religious and oh so sophisticated is membership covenants. Here's, here's a membership covenant that we read from a church. Here's the first line. Members shall refrain from filing lawsuits against the church and submit to Christian alternative dispute resolution they appeal to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Mm-hmm. That that looks like 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But if it's a crime, you should never go to the church. You should go to the authorities in right. jurisdiction and you go to the police. Okay. All right. It appears to be biblical, but it is a way of benefiting the church because who wins if you don't talk? Not you. Well, and the whole, I think uh, the meat behind it is... Paul was saying that with the expectation of Tove being present. And if a situation happens where there's absolutely no Tove in the way of any type of sexual abuse or any type of misconduct or anything like that, it's, it, 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 it's given it, it, the power has taken away from it because Tove's not there. And it's an opportunity that, that Tove only allows in a unique expression in the church. So. You know, sometimes it's it's the absence of Tove that is manifested by these kinds of actions. You mm-hmm. say, you know, I I when I heard about non-disclosure, I had no idea churches were doing yeah, this. I've I, seen it. I, yeah. I've never been told. All right. So I contacted some of my friends who are pastors of large churches. Have you ever signed a non-disclosure agreement? And I didn't find another church that had ever signed one. I mean, I... I don't think it's common, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, a seventh is to suppress the truth. Now, here's this is what I see. If they can get the accuser from talking, uh, they win. They get to control the narrative. Their reputation remains intact. The pastor keeps his job. Uh, very few people know, and they weren't, aren't going to talk. All right. What do they do? They shame. They intimidate. They threaten spiritual or financial consequences. You know, how many times are these women in churches with jobs? And if they come forward, they lose their job. And, you know, I know stories where it's a single a single woman with children. And if she loses her job, you know, they are almost homeless. Yeah. This is what happens. And they know the vulnerability or they destroy evidence. You know, when you hear the story that there was uh, 1,100 or so so-called emails between one person and the pastor, one female and the pastor, but they've disappeared into the into cyberspace because the church has a some kind of policy that they don't have to protect these things. And you think, oh, that's just too bad. They, that shouldn't happen. We should change that policy. Then you discover later that someone was told to destroy the hard drive so that this could never be discovered. Well, you know at that point that 
something was there that was really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I talked to a female who told me that when she got to her house, all her emails connected to that pastor in that church had suddenly disappeared from her own iPhone. Hmm. Now, I don't know how that kind of thing happens, but techno- technology people, that's suppressing the truth, keeping the truth. The church is a witness to the truth. All right. The final one is this. Issue a fake apology. And an expert on this is Wayne Mullen, who has studied this. Here, here's how they do. Sometimes people apologize in a way that condemns the other person. Just the words they use. I'm sorry you feel that way. All right. Sometimes it is one that appeases the other person. It's not an attempt to do all that is necessary to right wrongs but an attempt to offer only what is needed to quell an outcry, the outrage. Another fake apology comes with um, excuses, and Wayne, Wayne Mullen calls it an aposcuse. You know, apology with an excuse. Words like that don't usually work. But <laughs> it was never our intention, or it was outside our control. You know, that that is just a keeping yourself from having to tell the truth. He also talks about justifying the behavior of the church. It wasn't that bad, you know. It was just this. I mean, come on, what's wrong with that? Well, uh, have you studied the law on this, on how people perceive what is being done versus what you intended? We have to be, as leaders, extraordinarily careful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, apologies, Wayne Mullen says, are couched in terms of self-promotion. He says, some of them become pitches for why the organization is still worthy of continued support and engagement from its followers. That they act like we're on the we're the kind of church that supports this sort of thing. You know, we're on the we're the church that supports truth telling mm-hmm. and finding the truth. And all of a sudden you think, oh yeah, our church is going to do the right thing. The final one he talks about is that is um, an apology that is to attempt to garner sympathy for the institution. You know, we're hurting too type mm-hmm. of statement. It displaces the pain of the wounded with the pain of the wounder. That's not really an apology. And I've, this is one that I, I really watched. Um, and, you know, we could have included pages of apologies. And we had them all cataloged at one point. But uh, I believe apologies should be pretty clear. You should specify what you've done, and you should not say anything that justifies what you did, that victimizes the other person, that neutralizes the accusation. You just have to suck it up and tell the truth. You know, you look at the apologies of David in the Bible or the confessions that are written up in church liturgies. They're brilliant opportunities to say, we were wrong. We did what was wrong. So, well, I have to say in your book too, you got through all of them, Scott. I'm impressed. Here's the thing. Um, This is is sort of the dark side of the book. This uh, This is the negative stuff that was easy to find in a sense, it is a temptation to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, our goal was not to expose people, but to 
offer the opportunity of redemption by churches creating cultures that don't allow false narratives like this even to get started. You know, we, we read about churches who, when the accusation came out about the church, they said, okay, everything is open. We've hired an independent investigation that was approved by the victim. We're going to let them investigate. They can have access to anything we have. Our computers are open. Our cell phones are open. They can do what they want. We heard that. We thought, that's the way to do it. That's what should happen. And that is vulnerable to having bad things come out about your church. But in the long run, the witness of the gospel is at stake if people are going to lie about what they did. So, And I have to say, Scott, too, I think... It feels like we're going through this list of things that are really hard to hear and hard to hear happen in churches by leaders. But at the same time, I think it's a gift for people to have the ability to point to these things and say, now I have language for what these things are. Like maybe I felt a little uncomfortable with how this was spun or how Mm -hmm. this was talked about. And now I have the ability to say, call that out and say, that's actually wrong. When a leader spins it this way or gives a fake apology, now I can point to that and say, that's there are better ways to handle it. And this is not the best way to do this. Yeah, you could say this is a diagnostic. This is a diagnostic for people who've been abused and uh, then spun into a narrative by a church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's thanks, Laura. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. That's I want idea. everybody to know this is Laura Terrell, our yeah. assistant. This isn't my daughter, Laura Berenger, <laughs> who's uh, who's talking today. Uh, I just got an email from a friend of mine, former student of mine, said, I can't believe that's your daughter. I remember when she was about 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is Laura Terrell, who is a student at Northern and is um, an, my assistant now. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's writing great papers. And you're taking a break from class right now. To... Yes, right you at are. this very moment. That's right. You're dedicated. Those, those uh, intensive long days get pretty long. Yeah, Oh, they it's do. hard to sit on your butt that long. <laughs> okay. All right, Jazz, we're done. I think we are. I think, and I like yeah. how you talked about how this was a, a the the challenging kind of dark part of the book. And I know reading it, I felt like just a, an immense heaviness um yeah both thinking through people who have gone through this um at varying degrees of levels and um just the reality that this is a situation and so i i really appreciate that this isn't the end of the story and the fact that these narratives are used as diagnostic tools to point it out is because this is not jesus's story and it's not the story he's inviting our churches yeah. into or mm-hmm. where we're going to be going either in the next uh, couple of weeks we'll be making the transition to the goodness culture that God does clearly have a vision for what the church is all about. So, you know, um, our editor uh, at one point, I wanted to, uh, when we first, when Laura and I first wrote the book, um, we mixed the good with the bad Mm -hmm. to keep the, the good coming. So Mm -hmm. we had the good coming earlier Mm -hmm. and our editor said, no, there's, we, we need an arc where it moves from some of the heaviness to the goodness Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit more negative early and a lot less negative late mm-hmm. and less goodness early. And then you move into a more redemptive, the more redemptive theme. So it was a really good suggestion mm-hmm. by the editor. It was probably a little too much of a lecturer uh, just covering the, the bases uh, rather than uh, thinking of a narrative arc. So, 
Yeah. Well, so if you're a reader, stay, stay with the book, stay with us. Cause we're, we're going to the, the goodness. So, um, and make sure that you subscribe so that you continue to, to be with us as we will continue our next conversation in this series, this four part series that we're doing. So, uh, we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 